This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. 5pm in the City of London. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alongside this evening, Pretty good to over in New York. Alex Steele has a well-deserved day off. Today has been dominated by, well, I think probably dominated mostly by the U.S. payroll report, which was stronger than anticipated. We'll dig into the details uh, in just a moment. The U.S. labor market uh, is not slowing down. The signal, therefore, that the Fed is going to do more, potentially 75 basis points at the height of the next meeting. That has had a big impact today on stocks. The stocks have rolled over really sharply. The Nasdaq is now down by over 3% on the day. The S&P down by 2.2%. They're both up on the week, but you have had a big hit towards the end of the week on the back of this data. Uh, the FTSE 100 actually finishing fairly flat today. Some of the big drug stocks like GSK and AstraZeneca supporting the market. But the big story this week for the FTSE has been really strong energy stocks. Energy stocks have risen. Despite actually a fairly, fairly negative warning uh, from Shell, stocks like Shell and BP have had a really good week. Brent crude is up by another 4% today. On the week, it's up by around 8%. Uh, a very, very big story uh, in terms of the markets and also also feeding back into the inflation story as well, because this is clearly going to impact gasoline prices, petrol prices uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. We'll talk more about all of this data in just a moment. We're going to be joined uh, by Anna Wong, uh, our chief US economist. We'll get to her in just a moment. Before we do that, let's catch up with the headlines with Charlie Pell. Uh, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Thank you very much indeed. And here's what's going on. Prime Minister Liz Truss is asking Trade Minister Connor Burns to leave the government with immediate effect following a complaint of serious misconduct. This according to a spokesperson for the Prime Minister who did not give further details. Rapidly rising interest rates mean the 13-year bull run in the UK housing market is likely drawing to a close. The average five-year fixed-rate mortgage rose above the 6% threshold for the first time in 12 years yesterday. According to the research group MoneyFacts, the average two-year fixed loan hit that level earlier this week. The higher rates have analysts bracing for a plunge in home prices. UK corporate insolvencies in the second quarter reached their highest since 2009 with the soaring cost of energy cited as a primary concern for more than a fifth of companies. The numbers released by the Insolvency Service and the Office for National Statistics show that more than one in ten firms questioned in August reported a moderate to severe risk of failure. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. So as I say, the, the big set piece today was the U.S. payroll report. It came through a little hotter than anticipated. Uh, the estimate was that the U.S. economy uh, added 255,000 jobs. We got 263. But actually, the critical story was that the unemployment rate fell to 3.5. Uh, that is down from 3.7. Uh, and that is significant. But the participation rate, i.e. the number of people that the US economy pulled back into the labor market, did not pick up. In fact, it went into reverse with many, la- with many women uh, leaving the labor market. Uh, and that's a huge blow. And basically, it signals that the Fed may have to do more to slow this labor market down. Earlier on, after the number was released, John Farrow caught up with Marty Walsh. Marty Walsh, is the U.S. Labor Secretary. 
On the unemployment, you know, we were talking for the last three months about seeing those numbers go down. And in the year 2022, we've had about 440,000 jobs per month. Uh, we're still seeing people, 263,000 people going to work today. Uh, this, this month, I should say, last month, uh, we're still seeing those numbers going on. So I think that that's something that, that is important that we continue to put those gains. We still have job openings. People are still looking for work. Obviously, we'd like to see the participation rate a little higher. I mean, that number went down a little bit this month, I think one-tenth of a percent. Uh, so we're going to we have to see what, what's happening there. I don't want people lose their job, but we need to continue to bring down the inflationary pressures that people have. Certainly, uh, what OPEC made a decision on this week to do was not helpful to us. Uh, the president was disappointed. We're disappointed as administration, but we need to continue to bring down those pressures. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I had a long conversation in my office today. I certainly don't want to see the unemployment number go up. Uh, I like to see people working. He certainly doesn't want to see the, uh, the unemployment number go up, but the Fed may take a different view on this. Clearly, the Fed doesn't want to put people out of work. But as we heard from Jackson Hole, uh, from Jay Powell, he is going to have to cause some uh, pain in this economy in order to slow it down, in order to bring inflation down, Critty. Uh, And the market certainly took today's number as being a signal that maybe he's going to have to work even harder. Yeah, and you know, I think what's interesting is that market signal because we weren't quite sure in the last payrolls report if good news was bad news. And we're using some of this language, some of this kind of um, back to COVID uh, or back to 2020 kind of language. The idea is good news, good news. Um, it feels like a very horrible uh, bout of deja vu here. But, Guy, I think that's what's really crucial when it comes to the market reaction. We got a, a whiff of it in the last payrolls report. Now it's quite clear that's how the market is interpreting it. But I'm really curious about the trajectory here because, to me, uh, 236,000 or 263,000, excuse me, relative to the estimate of 255 is not that strong of a beat. I want to bring in um, someone who has way, way more experience uh, than I do for her analysis. Anna Wong joins me right here in studio, uh, right here in New York City, by the way. She's usually in D.C., so this is quite the treat for us all. Anna, why is this interpreted as such a strong beat? Because the unemployment rate, as Guy and you just said. Um, I think the surprise was that the the labor force decreased. And in the last jobs report, if you remember, everybody was saying, it's a Goldilocks report. There's a 0.3 percentage point jump, or just a a, a exact number, but in participation rate. But in our view, that increase in participation rate was not going to continue because when we look at the age profile of the American working population, it was going to there was going to be a big group of Americans who are going to retire this year anyway. So we are our, our participation rate right now is very close to what you would have expected um, if if the pandemic damn didn't even happen. So really, there isn't a lot of missing workers if you think about it that way. Yeah. Just how is the Fed going to view this report? What is it going to be looking at? What details is it going to be pulling out? Is this going to change anything for the Fed? Or is it simply going to confirm the idea they've got a lot more wood to chop, rates need to go higher? Yeah, I think that's pretty much it, that the Fed will see this as that they, it will be there will be little hope in getting labor supply to do most of the work for them. It has to be coming from supply. And, um, and, and the thing about unemployment rate is if labor 
workforce continues to stagnate or even decrease, it's actually easier for the unemployment rate to continue to go down. So suppose that the the participation rate uh, just stays at the current level. We estimated that it does not take a, a um, you know a, a large a monthly gain in non-farm payroll to push the unemployment rate down. It's it's quite easy to see it even edge down actually. And I, I think we, I mean, we talked about the labor force participation rate. We talked about um, the headline number. I want to talk about wage growth as well here. Um, because on the one hand, it's kind of a no brainer that if you're in an inflationary environment, everyone is going to be taking a hit when it comes to real wages. Is it really fair to read anything from wage growth, just given how tight the market is and how, I want to say, um, strong the demand is for jobs right now? I think when you to to think about how wage would feed into inflation, you have to loop in other variables too. The the most important is productivity, and I think this is how the Fed is looking at it too. They they care more about the unit labor cost, which is when you adjust nominal wage with the productivity growth. The productivity growth was at negative four percent in the first half of this year, and so if you think that you know we got 0.3 month monthly uh, percent change in wage growth today, and that annualized to about 3.6. So that's like already a very optimistic number, assuming that continues. But with productivity growth at negative four, it means that unit labor cost is going at like seven to eight percent. And if firms, that means that firms will either have to really continue to mark up their final prices, or they're going to have to lay off a lot of people in order to maintain that profit margin. And and I think that's that is going to keep the pressure on the core inflation. That's interesting because at the moment companies are not doing that. They're basically signaling they're going to try and hold on to labor. Um, they may take the margin squeeze elsewhere. And I think we're going to start getting this uh, this story developing as we work our way through the earnings story over the next few weeks. And is it possible that we have a relatively historically low unemployment rate and a recession? Like, can we have? We, we used to talk about sort of jobless recoveries. Can we talk about a, a job full recession? I think that would be an oxymoron. Yeah, yeah. I think but a recession by definition. In fact, one of the two indicators that the NBR um, Business Cycle Committee placed most weight on is the non-farm payroll monthly change. It has to be negative, and unemployment rate has to go up in order uh, for a recession to be formally announced. And um, another thing is just thinking about uh, thinking about it from a, the economic perspective. If there's so much, so many jobs, and people can find work, that means that their labor income is growing. And when people have more money, they spend, and you shouldn't have a decrease in output. Um, so, I think we do need to have unemployment to have a recession. And I think the uh, the NBER would agree with you, naturally. Um, I, I think something that our audience should know, and, and Guy, fun fact, I'm sure you already know this, but a little kind of free promo for Anna Wong is that I want to say about a month, two months ago, no, this was July, you made this call about a 5% terminal rate. And if you had compared 
your call to what other economists were saying. You were the contrarian in, in that 5% uh, terminal call. And everyone was kind of like, ah, oh, 5% seems like a lot. Even Gina Martin-Adams of Bloomberg Intelligence was like, oh, we, we're not, we're not going to get there. We're looking at a two-year yield now of 429. 5%, a 5% terminal rate is starting to become more and more consensus. And a lot of that has really turned around from the comments we heard in the last Federal Reserve meeting. So, Anna, to your credit, a very public to your credit, uh, you were way ahead of the mark on that. How uh, kind of, um, I want to say, tied to that call are you still? Is there wiggle room? Or are you still sticking to that 5% terminal rate? We are still sticking to 5%. I see a, a balanced risk around that call. I, You know, we saw from the UK turmoil a week ago that things could change very rapidly. So I would not discount the possibility that suddenly you have a global risk-off event. Some large financial firms blow up and yeah. another Lehman moment happened. And in that case, um, any economic models would predict that inflation should slowly come down, unemployment rate would surge, and then the wage growth would come down. So that would be the downside risk to our call. But then on the other hand, I also see that the dot plot we saw a couple of weeks ago still have this very optimistic assumption about um, the natural rate of unemployment. Basically, it, is, it assumes that the U star is 4.4%. That That is the unemployment rate that's consistent with price stability. But I think a lot of studies today sh shows that it's higher than that. It's probably more around the 5% figure. And that would imply that optimal um, Fed uh, reaction function should be for the terminal rate to be around 6%. So that really is the, wow. There is both upside and downside risk around five, and I would say that's why we are comfortable about staying with five. Anna, the big economic data out next week is going to be the inflation number, the CPI number that we're going to get. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What should we be looking at? Does today's number in any way change the thinking around that CPI print? Well, um, we have been maintaining that the core, that the year-over-year -year core CPI has not peaked yet. And I think that uh, we will still see the year-over-year -year CPI climb, core CPI climbing from the level we have seen last month. Um, and we think it's going to be peaking closer to 7%. Um, and in terms of um, the headline, I think that it will be still be relatively subdued because in September we did see um, gasoline prices continue to be quite low. Um, but so I, I don't think that the CPI data next week will be a big mover of, uh, you know, the, the Fed decision. It really is t today's labor participation surprise was more of a big deal than I think the CPI next week. And very quickly, we have about 40 seconds left. But how worried are you? if at all, about, we're talking about the acceleration of inflation, but what about the speed at which inflation can disappear, uh, the deceleration? Are you worried about that at all? Right. Um, there are definitely some possibilities that, that inflation could come down suddenly. For example, the Medicare uh, contribution is supposed to produce a drag starting in October, just in because of some quirky ways that CPI is measured yeah. and is measured in a different way in the PCE where it has a much larger weight than the CPI. So, but, but then you, you wonder, does quirky, quirky measurement um, issues that bring down the CPI, will that be convincing enough to the Fed to slow it down, even though in the print it is slowing down? Right. Well, I, I think the Fed is still fundamentally concerned about labor market. 
Well, Anna Wong of Bloomberg Economics, uh, always a pleasure to have her on. We're going to dive into a lot more coming up on the program. Stick with us. This is uh, The Cable on DAB Digital Radio. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. Big week next week for the Bank of England. Uh, we're going to hear from Governor Bailey. Uh, we've got an FBC uh, meeting as well. But at the end of the week, this time next week, in theory, the Bank of England's recent uh, temporary and targeted support for the long end of the gilt market should expire. Now, this week, we've seen the biggest gain in gilt yields in the 30-year tenor that we've seen since 1998. I think we're up by nearly sort of 55 basis points. We're now trading at 4.37. Now, in theory, the bank has not had to use its full firepower to support that end of the market, which in some ways would seem to suggest that the market is kind of calming down. But but there are those that suggest that actually it really isn't. And there's been still quite a lot of aggressive selling. And maybe actually the big pickup we've seen in gilt yields, remember, remember yields up, prices down, maybe reflects that. David Goodman joins us now, uh, as ever, to run us through the kind of the details of what is happening here. David, a lot of questions are being asked about whether or not the Bank of England can step away from this market this time next week. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the kind of real big question for gilt at the moment. People some HSBC have called it a cliff edge that's coming up next Friday that you have this support and suddenly it's not going to be there anymore. Some people in the market are a bit more dubious about that. They're saying there'll be something. They can't just go straight out of the market next Friday and exit entirely. But if you look at what they said last week, they said temporary targeted purchases. That kind of, to me, implies they can't stay in forever. So they have yeah. to find something. I mean, they have to find some way of keeping the market orderly, but I'm not sure whether they can keep doing these kind of for the rest of the year, for example. Mervyn King was right, was talking about this, and you guys have been writing about this, this idea that maybe they don't become buyers of last resort. They become, the bank becomes market makers of last resort, becomes a sort of warehouser of gilts, just to sort of manage the flow. This was something the banks used to do, but post-GFC financial regulation has kind of taken that ability for the banks to manage that process away from them is that something the bank could step in and now do potentially i think one thing that we talked about as a kind of comparable thing is what's happening in the energy market where the bank has set up this this liquidity fund essentially as a to kind of be there for margin calls they can draw on this and and it's a, a lending facility essentially so whether they can do something along those lines that they're there they can give pension funds this kind of option to use this fund but it's not the same as being in the market every day buying up to five billion of gills. Now we haven't got close to those levels, but it's as ever it's the size of the pledge and the fact that they're at all that's made the big difference to to yields. If this if the situation doesn't calm down, how destructive could it get? I, the the UK bond market has. I, I can't remember the last time I saw this volatility. Well, I can. It was it was sort of we we, we saw it around the GFC. We've seen kind of volatility in the bond market, but but, but it it feels like we're in a very precarious situation right now. What is going to calm it down? Is it politics that's going to calm it down? Is it the Treasury going to calm it down? Or is it ultimately the bank's responsibility to do that? It, it's hard to say. I think that one, in terms of like what's at stake here, there was a really interesting letter from John Cunliffe yesterday where he was discussing the dynamics behind the uh, what the BOE did. And he was saying at one stage they thought there was going to be £50 billion of for selling in the gilt yep. market. I think that's... Average liquidity in a day is only like twelve billion or something. So that's huge. huge. That's yeah. like a real that, and that is why this was a systemic issue that it could have flown, kind of basically started off with these LDI pension funds and just like cascaded through the markets and 
cause a fulfillment market crisis and obviously a financial crisis. So obviously that's what they, they need to work very hard to avoid. I think, I mean, if the government came out with a more, with a kind of credible fiscal plan, that might help kind of assuage some of the fears that see investments. But obviously we've also just got this environment where interest rates are higher. And I think one thing that the BOE have really done you mentioned this big move higher that we've seen this week in gilt yields. They've they've almost just managed that higher. Like we saw that move, in the, remember, in the yeah. space of basically a day last week, yields went up fifty basis points in a day. So 60, 55 in a week is obviously it's still yeah. really fast, but it's nowhere near as fast as we saw. And it was the speed and scale of that move that really caused the problems last week. So if they've managed to kind of slow down that process, then that kind of helps address bring some calm to the market. Even though we we are seeing yields go higher and. I think one thing the bank have been really clear on is that this isn't a yield curve control measure. This isn't a, nope. something to cap government borrowing costs. It's something for financial stability. So, if the market can function, I think they're they're kind of prepared to let that happen. Which is why you've seen what they've bought four point eight billion of bonds so far, and that's a that's a fraction of what they could be doing. Mortgage rates have got up very sharply as a result of all of this. To what extent is that going to do the bank's job of slowing the economy down? Exactly. We were talking about this just this morning. Like this is something. It's really interesting because the thing that people have been saying at the BOE for the last year is that look, the UK market has changed so much since our last rate hike cycle. Mm. Only about 20% of households are at on variable rate mortgages. I think we did some maths on that. And an interest rate only an interest rate hike would only directly, in terms of through the variable mortgage market, impact about 6% of British households. So that's a very wow. small part of the market that you're leaning on. Yeah. Now, we've seen mortgage rates shoot up not as not as a result of BOE rate hikes of this kind of market chaos. Mortgages are on every front page. Everyone's worried about them. Everyone's talking about the them. Psychological effect. Exactly. People who are coming to refinance next year and the year after that, it's in their head, oh, I'm going to have to refinance at 5 yeah. 6% rather than what I was hoping for, 2%. And that has an impact on consumer habits, consumer spending. People are probably going to save more to kind of address that. So that does have a big impact and probably far more of an impact than the BOE would have had if it just carried on hiking and there hadn't been this kind of big rate thing so, but obviously they still need to do more on rate that this doesn't do all of their job for them they still have to carry on hiking rates to kind of keep so where are we now in terms of expectations for for the next meeting i we're going to hear from bailey next week i think yeah last time i looked it was around about 50 50 between 100 and 125 there it seems crazy saying that because it's the bank of england and yeah, we've I, got used to far smaller moves but remember this time last week we were probably close to 200 so and that had some talk about an emergency hike in it but this feel i mean if they do 100, it would be the biggest since 1989, the biggest by far since they became independent. But I mean, if they're ever going to do 100, November feels like the time that they do it, really, doesn't it? And what comes after that? Do they do 100 and then and then basically that's everything front-loaded, we're done? Well, if they do 100, that gets them to about 3.25, I think. Yeah. Um, you'd be brave to suggest that's where they stop. You probably think there's more, more yeah. come in. I mean... If you think they're going to, I think front loading it is what they'll probably do. I think doing like 75, 75, 75 is maybe yep. less of a thing. Maybe like 100 and then go back to 50 is just to kind of, but this is the kind of statement. We know we know we need to do this and we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Uh, we are we are certainly counting down to the next Bank of England meeting. But as I say, we're going to hear from the governor next week. I think he's speaking uh, in Washington. David, thank you very much indeed as ever. Bloomberg's David Goodman on what is happening uh, with the UK economy. This is Bloomberg. 
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson in London, Kuri Gupta over in New York. And things are getting ugly, ugly stateside on the equity front. The Nasdaq is now down by 3.4%. The S&P is down by 2.5%. This after the better-than-expected payrolls report that we got uh, from the uh, the US a little bit earlier on. Good news is bad news. That certainly seems to be the market's view of the world right now. Uh, so we're seeing equity selling off pretty aggressively. You've got a fairly big bond market move as well. Yields are certainly sharply higher uh, on this side of the Atlantic. Today we've seen the, uh, the Swiss 10-year up by 15 basis points. The Italian bond market is shot higher as well. Uh, we've also seen crude prices going sharply higher once again. So we're now approaching 100 bucks a barrel once again on Brent crude. We're up by nearly 4.5% today on crude. Uh, and we've seen energy stocks really benefiting from that this week. Crude has been on a real tear following that OPEC decision to uh, deliver a significant cut. It's going to be interesting now to see how the US responds. So it's been a tough, tough afternoon. Certainly the tape for equities looks really difficult. We'll talk more about this in a moment with John Authors. First, though, let's get some headlines with Charlie Powell. Hi, thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Thank you very much indeed. Here's what's going on. The UK labour market is showing signs of cooling as workers and businesses prepare for a possible recession. A survey from the Recruitment and Employment Confederation shows companies are starting to impose hiring freezes because of pessimism about the outlook, and employees are deciding stay put rather than apply for other jobs. Morgan Stanley is raising the price estimates for liquefied natural gas in 2023 and 2024, seeing Europe's soaring demand for the fuel intensifying global competition for supplies. The continent looks set to cope this winter, even as Russia cut gas exports to the minimum. But next year, the supply crunch could really bite. BP plans to triple the number of offshore wind farms as it expands the business to reach its green goals. The Russian billionaires may be gone and efforts to tame runaway inflation may be raising fears of a global recession, but you wouldn't know it from the booming super yacht industry. The Monaco Yacht Show that ended last weekend had a near record 117 boats on display with this year's crop sporting names like Shabby or Miss Candy. Industry executives talked of insatiable demand that intensified during the pandemic as the wealthy decided that a boat of one's own was an ideal way to escape lockdowns and infection. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. Charlie Pellet, thank you very much indeed. Uh, super yacht versus barge, long boats. Charlie Pellet's just been on a, uh, a super yacht. No, 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 it wasn't. Wasn't it? No, it was uh, it, it was it was definitely a narrow boat. So, I was gonna say a super yacht. Uh, no, yeah. I, I, all I can tell you is the name on my super yacht. Name on the back would say "Can't afford the payments." I think that <laughs> settles it right there. Uh, Charlie Pellet, the voice of the New York subway. <laughs> we thank you uh, as as always. A fascinating conversation on on boats. Um, I, I suppose um, I want to bring in someone who. So, so ch- ch- before you jump in, yeah. A friend of mine who does work in the CPO industry says that the 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 name they should give their boats these these billionaires millionaires is QE because that <laughs> has basically been what has driven this huge appreciation in wealth and that's what they should call all of their boats just so as an should, honorary and, yeah. one more boat mention and then I'm gone guy and greedy really? isn't it yep. said that the two happiest days of a boat owner the day they bought it and the day they sold it that's what I understand about boating. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, the only thing I have to contribute is I've seen so many uh, kind of marinas where people are just hanging out on their boat, but they're not taking it out of the marina. It's just kind of sitting there and they're just bathing on it. It's kind of a status symbol more than an actual Years ago, I did a thing. show here called The Corner Office. We talked to executives and there was yeah. one, one CEO that I talked to, his favorite thing, going to the marina, sitting on the back of the boat over the weekend. Uh, nice. <laughs> Guy, I think we're going to have to rename this a podcast, uh, or I should say this radio show, From the Cable to the Marina, um, with, with all this boat talk. Um, speaking of someone who I, I'm sure has very few thoughts on boats, uh, John Authors, <laughs> I'm gonna, a, a solid pivot here. John Authors, our, our uh, Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and I want to say one of my, my desk buddy for, for years, uh, joins <laughs> us now. Uh, John, let's talk about these markets here, because I think it's fair to say, officially, that good news is bad news for risk assets. But I think this market reaction that you're seeing is wild. The stock market in the United States down 2.5%. Your take? That's, it is a little scary. I think I think one point, if you look at the week as a whole, what the uh, ISM gave it on, uh, on Monday, the NFP is take uh, it away today. Um, it was a somewhat overblown rally in the first two days of the week um, based on you know, this remarkably swift uh, yep. Belief that the uh, that uh, that there really was a pivot coming, and these numbers uh, on the employment are just not consistent with any significant change in the Fed's direction anytime soon, and so that's uh, that's come back off the table. It's it's always the bond market you need to watch most closely. I believe the stock market is still very slightly up. The last time I checked for the for the week, it um, is, yeah. the bond yep. market is is heading. Particularly if you look at the ten-year real yield, we, 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 there's a, the possibility of a of an actual new high for the cycle coming quite close there, and that's um, that is of some considerable concern. And obviously, the reversals that you've been talking about in uh, in, in Europe that you know, looks to me as well as partially as though it's a yeah. delayed reaction to the OPEC plus news. So that's also very concerning. John, why does the market? I, I, I I'm really struggling with this. Yes. We keep coming back to the idea that there's going to be a pivot, and everybody gets really excited, and, and then everybody gets really disappointed. I, the Fed is making it clear, abundantly mm. clear, that it is in no means going to pivot anytime soon. Now, it wouldn't do until it probably kind of was ready to do so, but at the moment, the Fed and the data are not consistent with a pivot. So why does the market keep getting sucked into this idea that we are on the precipice of a big pivot? Two reasons, I think. First is hope springs eternal. Markets are ultimately driven by human beings, even if those human beings write algorithms. There is still a degree of uh, of human desire, human hope written into it. And there has been such um, experience of, uh, of Fed pivots of one kind or another in recent history. And I guess particularly the Powell pivot at the end of 2018 that people are eager to believe that it'll happen again. The second reason, which I think is the more important one, is that a true pivot, as I see it, isn't – you don't pivot as in actually reverse the direction of policy yeah. in response to changes in the economy. You do it in response to some major financial stability issue. Uh, Greenspan pivoted in '98 over LTCM. Uh, the whole of the U.S. government pivoted within days of letting Lehman go down because – uh, it was obvious circumstances to force them into that. Um, I think particularly the Bank of England's incident last week um, raised 
I would you you could call them hopes with heavy inverted commas around it that there would be some financial accident that would mean there'd have to be lots more easy money. I, th- I think the uh, you know the, the the bubble of speculation about Credit Suisse similarly, uh, you know, it's it's not a it's not a great bank I would want to have stock in. It doesn't seem to me to be uh, anything like as close to going bust as uh, as people have, uh, seem to be betting. So that's my second reason. Anyway, so the, the the belief is it's not so much about the economy; it's that the rates are going to create some kind of an accident. Well, John, now I have to ask about. I, I mean, Guy and yeah. Alex. Um, I want to say a couple of weeks ago had this question of the day called uh, "Is the market broken?" Because we were seeing a very. We think it was a day where you saw this a pretty similar volatility that you're seeing mm. uh, now as well. And to me, and they had me on as a guest, and my take, and I want you to like please poke holes in my take if you can. My take at the time was no way are the markets broken because there is so much uncertainty and the markets are repricing new-ish developments from from kind of these central bank speakers so quickly. But the fact that they are able to reprice them without actually having some sort of plumbing issue – is actually a sign that the markets are functioning, that this isn't a GFC crisis, that this isn't 2008, this isn't even COVID uh, circa 2020 market crash. But then you have to in some way justify this extreme illiquidity. And to be honest, I didn't have an answer for that. Um, Your take, John. Um, Was that question before or after the the Bank of England bailed out the UK? (laughs) I think it was before, (laughs) to be fair. I I mean, that that was... That was the first really clear, unambiguous indicator that there was a problem with liquidity. That there there was a and, and it took you know a, a monstrous policy error to to, uh, to bring it out into the open. Um, I, I I generally agree with you that we have a very swift changing circumstances, and it's not clear uh, where we're going to head. I, I, it surprises me that after this much hiking, in, in unemployment is still as as low as it is, but there we have it. Now we're learning as we go along. It's completely natural that in changing uncertain circumstances without clear precedence, the market's going to veer around as it tries to find the correct level. That That's the way free markets work. It's not good, but it's better than any available alternative anyone has, has tried. So I, I would agree with you that um, up until... A, up until last week, there really wasn't a clear sign that the markets were broken in any way. They were they were just occasionally swinging in too far in one direction or another. But that's a sign that markets are working, not that they're they're not. Um, when you think about how markets are, are dealing with all of this, though, mm. and you try and get a sense of their predictive ability. Markets are meant to be discounting mechanisms. They're meant to be looking ahead and discounting whatever is going to happen in the future before it happens. Do you think that's happening now? Very, very interesting. I mean, there's certainly been a tendency. uh, 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 This was part of what buoyed things during the summer was the belief that the Fed will hike, but then it'll start cutting straight away. Uh, And people were discounting... um, relatively lenient rates in another couple of years from now without thinking that actually you would need to have done some damage, some slowdown with the, the, the earlier hiking for those rates to get that low. So there is a, there is a, a, a sense of, uh, of inconsistent discounting there. I would argue that stocks still seem 
overpriced uh, and that there is still a lot of hope embedded in earnings. But then earnings like employment have, have generally speaking, held up better than you uh, better than you might have expected. If you're one example of something where, um, I mean, there are liquidity issues and there always have been in this market. Um, inflation break-evens, as far as I can see, have proved, as an indicator, have proved close to useless. They said, yeah. you know, they never really indicated any great degree of trouble uh, and they are easing off now and it isn't making anybody any happier that the inflation break-evens are are coming down again. They, they, they just don't seem to be uh, useful as a, as, a, as a tool to see what the market is discounting for inflation. Well, I guess I have to ask now about, if we're talking about the increase in acceleration, we asked this to Anna Wong um, earlier in the show as well. We're so worried about the pace of, of a kind of um, acceleration when, when it comes to inflation. But I'm curious about the times that we've seen before this, where you have this this kind of run up and then a very quick deceleration. So I'm thinking the 80s, I'm post the 70s run up. I'm thinking uh, 2005, 2006, um, of course, coming in 2011, 2012, when you saw this kind of uh, decrease from, from the recovery of 2008. Are we in for something like that, that all of a sudden this kind of economic correction could take place and then you have an American economy, very specifically, um, that is no longer the safe haven, but is instead perhaps uh, the anchor weight for for the global economy? That would be, I mean, are we in for that? I don't know. I think it's possible. Uh, I do think it's fair to say that what you've just sketched out is something close to the, the realistic worst-case scenario. Um, I mean, obviously, there's very serious problems for, for I'm Europe. i a glass-half-empty kind of person, John, as you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that, that, that's what happens if you have the death next to mine for a year or two. Yes, I'm sorry about <laughs> that. So the, um, um, I, I still don't um, myself see... You're certainly right that the notion of whether this continues accelerating like this is is uh, is clear. I and mean, getting back to the what the uh, what, what we were talking about with the Fed, I think my idea of a pivot might be very different from other people, yeah. which is that some people are now saying a fifty basis point hike would be a pivot. Yeah, I think we, we, we are now, we're getting very nuanced now. We're now talking about how to define a pivot. But as you say, is the pivot, does the pivot come at the beginning of the cycle because it implies that we are ultimately going to be cutting or do you actually need to see a cut to define a pivot? John, have a great weekend. Always appreciate your time. John Authors, this is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome back. You're listening to The Cable. We're live on DAB Digital Radio. I'm Guy Johnson alongside Kriti Gupta over in New York. Now, for years, German industry has relied on cheap Russian gas. That era clearly has now come to an end. We're looking at the real possibility this winter of blackouts and rationing across the whole of Europe. Companies are having, therefore, to adapt to this. And Germany certainly is having to figure out how its industrial base is going to adapt. There, there is real fear that we could see deindustrialization. For instance, Bloomberg was reporting only the other day that Volkswagen, the German auto giant, is thinking about reallocating production 
elsewhere globally so that it can avoid some of this energy tension that exists in Europe right now. One of the biggest suppliers into the auto industry, one of Germany's biggest private companies, is Robert Bosch. Uh, The chairman of the board of Robert Bosch uh, is Dr. Stefan Hartung. He was in New York today, uh, and he kindly joined us at Bloomberg alongside uh, Critty and I's good friend and colleague, Ed Ludlow. We kicked off the conversation talking about how tough this winter could be. This will be a tough season. We know that uh, we all have to save energy and we have to increase supply. So definitely every company has its role to save its energy. Now Bosch itself is a technology company, so we are not very intensive in energy. So 70% of our energy is electricity, 20% is gas, and of that gas only 25% is for processes. Most of the gas we use for climate and, and air conditioning and heating of our facilities. So therefore optimal uh, is to that we yes reduce temperatures, switch fuels, and we all do that to reduce our gas consumption for sure. Dr. Hartung, Bosch is a key player in the automotive supply chain in particular. Are you worried about that supply chain in Europe, about how it functions if we were to have an energy crisis? Now, right now, we have to see the situation of the industries rather that we can supply what the demand is, right? Because we are still short in some components, specifically semiconductors. So we were fighting against that, that supply shortage. So what we will see is even if the demand is slowing and even if some parts of production is probably reallocated, there is still an over high demand and that will last for months. So even if we see recessive motions in the whole entire environment, the automotive industry, especially in the car side, will remain relatively stable for a certain amount of time. Give me some granularity in the supply chain. Where are the pain points still present? Where are things improving? And especially when we think about energy and input costs, where are you still fighting that supply chain inflation? Well, the real problem with the supply chain is still with the semiconductors, and that is special semiconductors which are used for automotive. So these are large structures, so we're not talking about these 14 nanometer and below, but rather 100 nanometer or 90 nanometer or lowest is probably about 40 or 23 for the controllers we use. So that still is short, even if we see that slowing down in the mobile phone market, which unlocks capacity in semiconductors, automotive supply will still be, let's say, at least reasonably constrained. Even for the next year, there will not be a complete free speech, right? There will be always a bit of restrainment. So there's always some fight for the components. The energy part is definitely also a risk for those parts of the supply chain which are on the raw material side energy intensive. So here it's for us more a supplier question where we are with our partners in tight control, where are things going, what is in the pricing, and obviously that makes things not cheaper, it makes it more expensive. Well, what do you make of uh, the President Biden's big push to create some of this manufacturing capacity right here in the United States? It's a plan that's going to last at least a decade to really get um, fully operational. But is that something that you're positioning for or preparing for? Well, that resonates very much with us, right? Because we are, if you see us, very strong in Europe. We are also reasonably strong in Asia. But we see ourselves underrepresented here. We are here since 1906 in the North America. We are strong, but we should be much stronger. So that resonates very well. I'm very happy that this policy comes into place. We are expanding. We are growing. We are buying companies. We are investing. We just announced an investment in Anderson, and we will announce further investments in our facilities. We invest in Mexico. We expand into new companies we buy, like Hydroforce. We just bought that, which perfectly fits to us. So definitely the North American space, especially USA, is a big opportunity for us. That was the, uh, the, the boss of Robert Bosch, uh, Dr. Hartung, 
joining us in the New York studio a little bit earlier on, talking about the energy crisis, but also talking about the opportunity that potentially could come out of some of this as well. Crew, we've got a couple of minutes left on the show. Let's talk about what we're going to be watching out next week. I, I have to say, for the UK, it's going to be a really big week. UK Parliament comes back on Tuesday. It's going to be really problematic for Prime Minister Liz Truss. We've got Andrew Bailey speaking, I think, in Washington on Wednesday. Uh, and then you've got this, this emergency program that the Bank of England has put in to support the pension industry and the gilt market. That comes to an end this time next week. It's going to be a really bumpy ride, I think, for the UK markets. Yeah, I think what was really interesting is what Klaus Batter, I want to make sure I'm saying his name right, of Sockgen said. He's the chief global economist earlier um, on, on on the show in the 10 to 12 slash 3 to 5 UK. Um, is, and he said that the BOE shouldn't be the buyer last resort, but they should be a market maker. And I'm really curious yeah. to see if that's what manifests. Yeah, could they actually warehouse some of this risk? I think would be yeah. would be something that maybe they could achieve. I think they've got to figure out kind of what they they can't keep doing what they're doing now. So maybe they do have to figure out a longer term problem. I guess your side of the pond, CPI, probably the headline. It really is. And I think it's going to come down to, once again, uh, the margin of the acceleration. Look, equities are so primed here for any good news. And, and, and to, to see a a smaller than expected acceleration in inflation could actually create a little bit of a boost in, in the stock market. At least that's what I'm hearing from some of the guests we have on, on Bloomberg Television. I think what's crucial here is simply how much is good enough? Um, and, and if indeed we did see the peak uh, a couple of months ago, I mean, of course, it's a very contrarian statement to say that, oh, well, we still there still might be a peak in inflation um, kind of coming, coming down the road. But um, it really is anyone's guess here. And coming back to our earlier point, we're speaking yeah. with John Authors, uh, the volatility, the repricing, um, there is still a lot of unknowns. There is. And oil and energy has been one of the huge ones this week. It's been amazing to see the oil price go as mu- up as much as it is. And I guess uh, you guys are very susceptible to increases in oil prices. It feeds straight through to gasoline. It really does. And, and that brings it right back to, once again, the point that John Authors was bringing about uh, break-evens. Because if you look at break-evens, look at five-year tips, for example, overlaid with oil, they're moving identically. And if you start to see yep. oil spike back up, break-evens aren't going to be far behind. Yeah, that OPEC story, huge this week. Um, I don't think we fully digested exactly the impact that it's going to have. Critty, great to have you on the show this evening. Thank you so much uh, for joining me both on television and here on the cable on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Have a great weekend, everybody. It's going to be a bumpy, busy week next week. We're going to have some great coverage for you. This is Bloomberg.